Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we are going to actually go over an article Next time we'll resume with the second volume of the Exploring Mormon Thought book series. But this week I wanted to go over one of my dad's more well-known papers. It's titled, The Book of Mormon as a Modern Expansion of an Ancient Source. And this is kind of a theory to explain the method of how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. So just to start out, let's explain why there needs to be a theory at all. So, just to start out, most Mormons probably believe that the Book of Mormon was translated, because we have a lot of quotes saying, you know, it was translated by the gift and power of God. And a lot of people assume that that means it was translated just like any other document would be, meaning like Joseph Smith sat down and was looking at the words written on the plates, and he translated them directly into English, directly from the plates, exactly how they would be read in English as far as he could. However, there are several issues that arise from critics of the Book of Mormon, as well as just, you know, facts that exist that make it so that can't necessarily be the explanation that we adopt if we take the Book of Mormon seriously. So, I just am going to give some brief outlines of topics, and then we can go into a couple of them as examples. So, one example is there's a lot of what is called anachronisms, and for those that don't know, an anachronism is either a teaching or an item that is out of place, like on a timeline. For example, there are horses in the Book of Mormon mentioned, but according to what we know so far, horses didn't exist in ancient America, at least as far as we know of horses. And, you know, you can get into that. There's lots of people that have come up with different theories on if there are actually horses, but that's beside the point. The thing is, that's called an anachronism. They shouldn't be there, um, as well as several Christian teachings that would not have come from an ancient Israelite society. So, if you could, Dad, just kind of give us a brief overview of some of the key issues that come up in the Book of Mormon that would need this expansion theory to make sense of it, without getting into the expansion theory yet. Well, let me kind of set it out. I mean, what I had done, I had looked carefully at the evidence related to the history city of the Book of Mormon. And in the article that was published in Dialogue in 1987, I went through a number of issues that I thought reflected a modern influence. Let me begin with two obvious ones, okay? And why the history city of the Book of Mormon would be in question at all in the first place. And on its face, the book is implausible, and here's why. First of all, it was delivered by an angel, and it's pretty hard to account for things in naturalistic terms if you say that it was delivered by an angel on gold plates. Second, we don't have the gold plates. And third, it's in English and not in any ancient language. And so I think that there is already a good deal of prima facie resistance to the Book of Mormon, that it could be ancient. And basically based upon the fact that the religious beliefs, the spiritual beliefs that underlie the historicity of the book are not live options for a lot of people, okay? There's this natural attempt to account for the book in naturalistic terms. 
There are a number of, I'm just going to point out that there's at least one unmistakable source that was relied upon in the Book of Mormon that is modern, and that is the King James Bible. The translation is one that comes from the 16th century, and that is the translation that is relied upon. And so the King James Bible is one that we know was was relied upon. It's quoted at length, and it was published in 1611. And so on what's known as source criticism is the method of identifying sources that are relied upon. And a number of people who I think are responsible have taken a look at what they believe are modern influences on the Book of Mormon. I look at those influences and ask, well, are they actually influences on the Book of Mormon? So let me give you a few. I think largely because of the work of B.H. Roberts, which I think is much misunderstood and certainly misrepresented by enemies of the church. They argue that the 1825 edition of the views of the Hebrews was relied upon by Joseph Smith in creating the Book of Mormon. I take a very close look at that and suggest that's not the case. What is, what is views of the Hebrews, for those that don't know? Views of the Hebrews was published by Ethan Smith in 1825, and was the, it was a book that was giving evidences that the American Indians were descendants of the Ten Tribes of Israel that went to the North countries in the Assyrian um, fall when much of northern Israel was taken into Assyria. And so you've got this captivity that occurs, and his theory was that they were descendants of the Ten Tribes. Okay. What had happened is B.H. Roberts had laid out, and he was arguing, well, people could argue against the Book of Mormon, asserting that this is a modern source it relies upon, and he called it a parallel between the Book of Mormon and views of the Hebrews. You know, so for instance, the book is claiming that there's a holy book that was written by the Indians that they have. There are two groups, one savage, one lazy and ignorant. They were expert in mechanical arts. The savage group destroyed the more civilized group. And both feature the fall of Jerusalem, admittedly different falls, and really it doesn't feature the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem didn't fall when the ten tribes were taken into Syria, at least when, when they went north. They both quote Isaiah extensively and so forth. They both rely upon and talk about the, allegedly talk about the stick of Joseph and, and the stick of Judah and so forth. I take a close look at those. And when I look at them, those parallels, I think, just disappear because it's not what Views really says. And when I look at the two, they're very, very different. The Book of Mormon doesn't claim that the American Indians are descendants of the Ten Tribes. It claims that they're descendants of a particular family, descendant of the tribe of Ephraim, not one of the Ten Tribes, coming out of the Southern Kingdom, not the Northern Kingdom, and so forth. And so when we look at it, the parallels, I think, that are claimed for the two works really, in my view, dissolve and, and aren't really that compelling. Another is the argument that Lucy Mack Smith in her, essentially her biography, but the life of Joseph Smith, her son, talked about dreams that Joseph Smith Sr. had received and how much they were like the dream of Lehi and Nephi in, in uh, the Book of Mormon. And indeed, they are close, and she herself made the comparison. The problem is, is that her book was published way after the Book of Mormon, and it's very likely that she's relying on the Book of Mormon text for the parallels, not the other way around. There's no way to compare what he actually was saying in his dreams, um, so the, the reliance actually goes the other way historically. 
Some have asserted that Joseph Smith's money digging, which he was unquestionably involved in, influenced the text of the Book of Mormon. Got to remember that when I wrote the article, Mark Hoffman was being tried, and the issue of forgery was still an open question. But I think the money digging influence on the Book of Mormon, I don't even see the language of money digging in the Book of Mormon at all. There's nothing in the Book of Mormon at all about the necessary things like enchantment of spirits, divining rods, magic circles, guardian spirits, sacrifices to appease spirits, or the other kinds of rituals that are necessary to make sense of that money digging worldview. And the Book of Mormon follows rather the language in Deuteronomy of the Deuteronomic Covenant for what people claim is related to money digging. The Book of Mormon refers to treasures being hidden up in the earth and then becoming slippery and slipping away. And some people have asserted, well, that, you know, that's money digging reflected in the Book of Mormon. I don't think that's what it's reflecting. I think it reflects the covenant reflected in Deuteronomy 8 and 17 through 19. In fact, let me give you, this is directly from First Enoch 98 and 8. It says, Woe to you rich, for you have trusted in your riches, and from you your riches will depart, for you have not remembered the Most High God in the days of your riches. It's very close to the language in the Book of Mormon about the fact that they will not be able to hold on to their riches because of their wickedness, which is exactly what Deuteronomy is also asserting. They also point to a stone used by a prophet and that's named only in Alma 37 and 23, a prophet Gazellum. It talks about a stone that, quote, shines forth in darkness unto light. And they say, you know, that's just the seer stone used in money digging. But there's this interesting fact. The, the Hebrew gazal is a verb meaning to repine or plunder, rob or steal. But gazala is also the word for cutting or polishing precious stones. So the name gazellum is actually a play on words in this text, but it's possible only in Hebrew. It would refer to something, gazellum would mean something like stones cut by God or hewn stones of God, but it would also play on the word for robbers or plundering. And so this kind of pun with the name gazellum in the, in the context, in my view, is evidence of antiquity, not evidence of money digging at all. And then there's a good deal of discussion of that the Book of Mormon resembles the government and democratic governments of America and reflects the early revolutionary fervor in America. And I take a very close look at that. I rely largely on an article by Bushman where he demonstrates, I think, quite convincingly that the Book of Mormon really doesn't resemble that early view in America at all. I then look at anti-Masonic rhetoric or what's claimed to be anti-Masonic rhetoric in early America and the claim that the, the Gadian robbers are just the, the Masons. And in fact, I take a look at all five of the various types of robber bands and what we would call secret combinations in the Book of Mormon and demonstrate that the five different types of robber bands are all very different. None of them are like Masons, really. And so I discount that as a source that's relied upon. But the King James Bible, I, you know, I think you, it's just beyond dispute that the King James Bible was relied upon. And you know, it's the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. And books that were written well after Lehi would have left Jerusalem, such as, for instance, the Book of Mormon, interestingly enough, never quotes from 3rd Isaiah, which I believe are, are chapters 55 through 56. It does quote from 2nd Isaiah, chapters 49 through 54, and those are supposed to have been written after Lehi left Jerusalem, so how could it be quoted? But you've already got the problem. I mean, the Book of Mormon quotes the New Testament liberally, uh, uses New Testament phraseology liberally throughout. And so there's no question that the Book of Mormon is influenced to a great extent by the language of the King James Bible. 
The stories in the Book of Mormon are dependent on versions of the King James Bible and books in the Bible that were written after the Book of Mormon, or at least after Lehi left Jerusalem, and couldn't have been an influence. There can be no question that there are modern influences of the language of the Book of Mormon, given that. And let's go over some of the concepts and just discuss how they don't fit. So, don't go too much, but just briefly. So, baptism, for example. They didn't have baptism in the times when Lehi would have left Jerusalem. That's That comes much later, correct? Very clear, yeah. I mean, you don't have anything resembling baptism in, well, I shouldn't say that re- nothing resembling, but it's very clear they don't have a baptismal ceremony where people are forgiven of sins and or are baptized in the name of Jesus in times before Jesus. However, there are certain ceremonies that are reflective, in at least to some extent, of baptism. There were ritual washings that were reflected in the Old Testament. And certainly um, at Qumran, they practice ritual immersion as a sign of repentance. But a lot of scholars believe that it's very likely that John the Baptist himself came from Qumran and that he, in large part, was influenced in his baptismal language and theology, if you want to call it a theology, because of his influence at Qumran. Qumran is the Dead Sea Scrolls. What are some then? Because everyone I'm bringing up, you're kind of defeating the purpose of me bringing it up. I'm trying to show that there is a need because these, there are some clear things that would only make sense from a 19th century perspective. And each one I bring up, you're saying, oh, it could have actually been an ancient thing. What are the ones that we can say, no, there's no way that that could have happened other than the New Testament verses? The use of the term, so for instance, to refer to those that are Jerusalem as Jews, is an anachronistic usage in language. The way that baptism is presented in the Book of Mormon is very clearly a Christian baptism at a certain point. The earliest references to baptism are not a fully Christian baptism, but even before the time of Christ, the the most developed theology of baptism is actually in 2 Nephi, where it talks about a fully developed Christian baptism, and there's nothing like that in ancient Judaism to that extent. The views of salvation in the Book of Mormon, the views of atonement, are extremely Christian, but it's strange that there's a concept of an afterlife in the Book of Mormon, it seems to me, because There really isn't that kind of developed concept of an afterlife, but then it's presented as a new kind of revelation to Lehi in any event. But the concepts as they're discussed in the Book of Mormon just really don't fit within a 19th century framework. And, you know, I could go through a whole bunch of them, and I discuss them at length, but those that seem to have to be developed in much more Christian sense in the Book of Mormon than anything that we could possibly expect— have to do with the way that it talks about salvation, being born again, receiving the name of Christ, that kind of discussion. The notion of the fall of Adam as a fortune of fall is a development that took place only later in patristic literature, of course made famous in Paradise Lost. The atonement, as is discussed in the Book of Mormon, is a developed Christian notion of atonement because it's affected solely through Christ and through his sacrifice. The very thing in the New Testament is that people were expecting the Messiah to come and free them from political slavery, and so the very concept of what Jesus did was clearly not expected by the Jewish people, even up to the time of Jesus' life. Right. So, when I look at the kinds of discussion in the Book of Mormon, it's very clear to me that it relies upon, if you will, more of a Methodist terminology Joseph Smith, I think, was very partial to the Methodists, but it's a Wesleyan type of a view of salvation, a Wesleyan 
terminology is used throughout the Book of Mormon to talk about atonement and Christ and how people are saved from their fallen nature. The notion that humankind had a fallen nature from which they needed to be saved was not present in pre-exilic southern kingdom of Israel. So these kind of things suggest that at the very least that the language and to some extent at least the concepts that are presented in the Book of Mormon have been influenced by Joseph Smith's 19th century views of Christianity and in more in particular the Wesleyan tradition that we call Methodism. Okay. And so yeah, just that's just a brief overview of course, I'll put a link to the article in the post when I post this, so you can actually read everything, but I just wanted to get that overviewed. So that section is mostly to address the, what I'd call, you know, kind of more super orthodox members of the church that might not understand that there are these issues within the Book of Mormon. So it can't necessarily be a literal translation like we think, because, you know, literal translations don't have well, we'll get into that, but they wouldn't usually have that type of modern interpretation thrust upon them. And so there are issues, and this is a big issue for a lot of people, and they, you know, just to address the people that don't understand, it's a real issue. But on the other hand, I'd like now to go over kind of some things that actually would say, because like you could hear those issues that we just went over and be like, well, I guess Joseph Smith just made it up. I mean, that's pretty clear. There's no way he could know these things. It's not in context. And so I guess he just wrote the Book of Mormon himself, and it's pretty clear from that. But now I'd like to have you and Jacob go over some different things that there's no way that Joseph Smith could have known about that actually he got right, and there's no way he could just get lucky. They're pretty complicated. So, Jacob, if you want to talk about that a little bit. All right. So, on the flip side of there's all these anachronisms in the Book of Mormon that it seems like they're coming from a 19th century view rather than an ancient view. The flip side is there are ancient, or at least echoes of ancient type ceremonies and aspects in the Book of Mormon that there's no way that, or at least it's not probable in the least, that Joseph Smith would have known that these were actual things. These are discoveries that have since that time come to light. And Dad, if you wanted to go into a few of the examples, um, such as the the Covenant Renewal Festival and the, the prophetic lawsuit and so forth. Yeah, right. I mean, what we're looking at in the Book of Mormon, uh, and let me emphasize, I had looked at everything that I could about the Book of Mormon and had largely come to the conclusion that it couldn't possibly be ancient given the modern language, the modern concepts and so forth, and the way that it expressed the very developed Christianity. But what brought me back is I looked at the evidence for its antiquity, which I I found just couldn't be explained away easily on the theory that it was simply modern. So the first thing that I look at and that I find to be very compelling is that the Book of Mormon reflects an accurate understanding of covenant renewal festivals that existed in the pre-exilic Israelite world, and in particular the world of Judaism just before the Babylonian fall. It's very programmatic. There's a preamble identifying the author of the covenant, a historical prologue that enumerates the mighty deeds of God on behalf of his people, stipulations of a covenant, record of the covenant, and provisions for its preservation, a list of witnesses, and the curses and blessings. What you need to understand is that this covenant renewal was based upon covenant forms that were identified initially, I believe, by Mendenhall in 1955, when he was looking at essentially covenant treaties between Near Eastern countries or Near Eastern cities. 
And what he then noticed was that the same form existed in Israelite covenant renewal festivals and wrote about it in 1955. And so Mosiah 1 through 5 is a very good example of a covenant renewal festival. And I'm not the only one to recognize this, obviously. At least a dozen biblical scholars, people who are trained in biblical studies, read Hebrew like we read newspapers and are very familiar with the evidence, have written and agreed that, um, yeah, this very closely reflects the covenant renewal tradition in ancient Israel. And so I asked myself, well, how likely is it that Joseph Smith would just stumble onto that? Now, there's some very Christian parts in the speech of King Benjamin as well, but the fact is, is that this pattern of covenant renewal is well recognized. And the thing is, is not only does it appear in Mosiah 1 through 5, it also appears in Mosiah 7 through 8, Mosiah 25, and again in 3 Nephi when Christ comes and renews the covenant. And so it's like, well, gee, he did it once in remarkable detail, but maybe, you know, anybody with a Bible in their hand could just reflect all of this pattern in fairly clear detail. But how many, you know, he does it over and over again. And so I began to doubt that I could explain the Book of Mormon in terms of simply being a modern document because I found this evidence to be persuasive. I outlined the evidence. I still find it to be persuasive. Okay. And that has to do with the Covenant Renewal Festival. That portion of Mosiah has often been viewed as a view, or at least an influence from Joseph Smith, from the camp meeting type revival meetings that were happening at his time. Do you think the covenant renewal ceremony or festival is more prominent there? And why would that be a better view than the the camp meeting influence? Well, because the camp meeting influence doesn't explain all of the detail or the fact that the pattern appears at all. Here's why the camp meeting is present. I, I think that what led Joseph Smith to interpret the text as a camp meeting is that they all took their families and went and stayed in tents around the temple. And remember, these covenant renewals happen when a new king is being coronated, which is exactly how it happens in Mosiah 1 through 5. It also happens, by the way, in Mosiah 7 and 8 and 25. I mean, whoever wrote this recognized this is done in connection with the coronation of royalty. There was no coronation in a camp meeting, but I think Joseph Smith saw it as a camp meeting because at camp meetings, they would take their tents as families and stake them around a basic pedestal, if you will, on which the itinerant preacher would speak and call people to repentance and to accept Christ and to be born again, which is the kind of language that's also present, by the way, in Mosiah. There's none of that language is ever present in the covenant renewal. <laughs> I mean, nobody in any of these ancient covenant renewals ever said, asked anybody to apply the blood of Christ to receive forgiveness and so forth. So the language that appears there appears to me to be reliant on this understanding. For instance, you've got this in Mosiah 4 and 2 where it says, Oh, have mercy and apply the tongue and blood of Christ that we may receive forgiveness of our sins. And it says they viewed themselves in their own carnal state. Well, there is no carnal state to be recognized really in any preazilic Hebrew writing. I mean, they just don't speak that way. And the notion of applying the atoning blood of Christ to receive forgiveness of sins is, of course, entirely foreign to any of the covenant renewals in ancient Judah. So what's going on here seemed to be, again, an interpretation of an ancient covenant renewal festival in terms of Joseph Smith's understanding of a camp meeting. And elements of both are present. As I read it very carefully in light of the best evidence that I could, that's how I came to see it. Okay. And we'll get deeper into that a little bit later, but we're seeing both the ancient influences and the modern influences meeting in one here. 
I saw both modern and ancient in the same text. Just to mention it there, it's not just the Covenant Renewal Festival, that there are also prophetic lawsuits, prophetic commissions. And so there's these types of ancient evidences as well throughout the Book of Mormon. I think it's important to also recognize what I'm doing here is applying a recognized method of critical scholarship to tease out the ancient elements of a document that may also have more modern editorial involvement with the text, okay? Like the Bible, for instance. (laughs) In the Bible, you have precisely this kind of thing happening where older texts are taken and repurposed and redacted and so forth. The scholars have used form critical evidence. Well, another form critical study shows that the elements of a prophetic lawsuit, in order to bring a lawsuit, I mean, how do you bring a lawsuit in Israel? Is You go to the gates of the city, you crawl up on the gate, and you begin to yell your lawsuit at the people, okay? And then there are specific elements that have to be. You summon witnesses to appear and testify, and you make accusations in the name of God in order to establish what you've been wronged about. And a defense is sometimes offered that's implicit, and then a judgment is pronounced. And then a covenant is made regarding the resolution of the lawsuit. All of these are present at least three times in the Book of Mormon. And so what we get in the Book of Mormon is a repeated use of well-recognized form for bringing a lawsuit. In fact, there are two lawsuits brought by Abinadi in Mosiah, and then Samuel the Lamanite asserts a lawsuit that follows the form that is essential to bringing a lawsuit. Now, I can tell you that any American lawyer looking at a complaint could tell you essentially when the complaint is written because of the rules that apply at the time of filing the complaint. And so it's the same kind of thing here. There are specific types of rules in order to properly assert a lawsuit, and that's what this does. Now, I will say that one of the most convincing evidences of antiquity that I found is the prophetic commission and throne theophany in 1st Nephi. I wrote an article that was published in BYU Studies. There is a very clear pattern or form that was used by ancient prophets to establish them as a bona fide prophet called by the council of God in Israel. And the book of 1st Nephi, the very first chapter, is a perfect example of such a form commission. And I took and compared this against the way that Joseph Smith presented his own experiences in the 19th century. What he presented followed a 19th century pattern when he talks about his first vision. doesn't even remotely follow the ancient pattern. So when Joseph Smith talks about his own spiritual experiences, he places them within the context of very formal nature of presenting one's spiritual visions in the 19th century. But the Book of Mormon doesn't follow the 19th century pattern at all. And so I think it's strong evidence of antiquity of the Book of Mormon. And so now I've got a problem. I have both modern and ancient in the Book of Mormon that needs to be explained. And so the question is, how do I explain that? How can I explain the fact that I have clear evidence of modern influence on the text? That in fact, it relies on a text that couldn't possibly have been available to the writers of the Book of Mormon, the King James Bible. And how do I explain the evidence of antiquity in the Book of Mormon? So that was the question that I posed for myself as I carefully assessed the evidence. And then on top of that, you have supposedly a written record on golden plates that has a record on there. And how could these modern influences be on a record that was written down supposedly in ancient time? That's when we move on to the translation process and you begin to elucidate how this could be. Yeah, so I just want to start out talking about what we know about the translation process and then where this can fit in here. So. 
a lot of things have actually changed recently in the church just with certain things that have come forth. I think up until even a couple years ago, the main image or portrayal that was presented to church members was Joseph Smith putting on the breastplate using the spectacles of the Urim and Thummim, they were later called, to translate the entire Book of Mormon, and he sat down with the plates and was reading directly from the plates with a curtain drawn across, and then he was just dictating it to someone on the other side. So, while that's not a complete falsehood, that is definitely a little bit misleading because that process was used for most of the 116 pages that we don't actually have in the Book of Mormon because they were subsequently lost by Martin Harris. And for most of the Book of Mormon translation process, actually Joseph Smith used a seer stone, not a unique one. He actually had the seer stone during his money-digging days even. But the same seer stone, which is kind of an object used in the folk magic that existed in his time. Anyway, the seer stone was placed in a hat, like a top hat, and he'd put that up to his face so that it would block out the light. And somehow gazing into the seer stone, he would dictate, without even looking at the plates, the content of the Book of Mormon that we have now. And so I think just that is a big change that's come about in recent years. The church has actually shown the seer stone and acknowledged that is actually how it has been. And, you know, scholars have known about this for a long time, or anyone that cared to look has known, and you mentioned that extensively in the paper, which was written back in 1987. So obviously anyone that tried to look could know. I'm just trying to say that the general consensus has now been updated. And so without looking at the plates, then that definitely takes out this direct translation process that I mentioned at the beginning that I think most church members have held. What would you like to add on to the method, at least? First, there are two different time periods of translation. I think there are two different methods. Joseph Smith translated 116 pages in New York with Martin Harris's scribe. And William Smith, his younger brother, was there at the time. I mean, he actually saw what was happening. And he described the translation process happening then using the Urim and Thummim, which he described in great detail and said that he'd actually seen. There was a breastplate. You would take essentially what he called two ribs of a bow, which held the interpreters. And there was a double silver bow that was twisted into the shape of a figure eight. And then the stones were placed, quote, literally between the two rooms of a bow. And Joseph Smith would then take and place the two stones before his eyes and use them as a means of translation. He said he stopped using them because they strained his eyes. And so I believe, based upon that kind of evidence, and the statements that are actually made during the time period that the Book of Mormon is being translated that refer to the Urim of Th Now, Urim of Thumb was never referred to until 1833. They didn't even talk about that. The Book of Mormon doesn't refer to Urim Thumb. It, it talks about interpreters. Okay, that's the term that he uses. So, the relationship with Urim and Thummim wasn't made until William Phelps made it in 1833 when he equated it with the Hebrew instrument known as the Urim and Thummim. It wasn't the Urim and Thummim that was used by the Hebrew priest, however. That has to be made clear. It was a recognition by Phelps that the stone was not like a magic stone. He was making, I think he used the term Urim Thumb because he wanted the relationship to be with religious implements like described in the Bible, not with magical stones that were used. And so we get this development of the terminology about what was done. I think after Joseph went to Harmony, Pennsylvania, and Oliver Cowdery was his scribe, what you've described is accurate. And the church has actually shown pictures of this. He had a chocolate-colored stone that he found while digging a well near his house. 
and he found this stone digging the well. There were others in his immediate vicinity who also used seer stones. They used seer stones to find hidden objects, and on at least one occasion, apparently Joseph Smith looked in his seer stone to find something that was lost. For Martin Harris, Martin Harris was amazed that he could find it using the seer stone. In any event, we have these two different methods. Here, however, is a method that was described by David Whitmer. And I'm not sure that David Whitmer ever personally saw what was going on. He certainly didn't see what he describes Joseph saw. He says, essentially, and there are others that would talk this same way, but I think the influence is really from talking with David Whitmer, that the characters on the plates would appear in the stone, and then underneath them, a translation would appear. And so it would be kind of an automatic translation that was fully divine in every respect because the words were being provided directly by God and Joseph would just read them off. There are a lot of reasons that that can't be how it was done for anybody who takes this seriously, but the first of which is that Joseph Smith felt free to change the text, update the text. And if the words had been dictated directly by God, I'm not sure he would have believed he could have improved on the way that God translated the book. What are some examples of some updated text? Like, how far after are we talking here? In 1837, Joseph Smith went through and made a number of very significant revisions himself. For instance, he, I think, with the suggestion of Perley P. Pratt, added the phrase, out of the waters of baptism, to one of the Isianic texts that was talking about the waters of Israel. He added texts where he took out the reference to the Son of God only and added that he was, or, or that referred merely to God, and added the Son of God to make it clear. There are a number of fairly significant changes that were made to the text by Joseph Smith. So, if, you know, if, you're, if one is asking were the changes significant, yes, they were doctrinally significant. Were the changes extensive? Uh, it's not like he added entire chapters or anything. He didn't. But he did add, uh, felt free to add explanatory language or change words where it was appropriate or to add clarifying phrases where he felt, at least in 1837, that what was there was not quite clear enough. Now let's shift a little bit and let's talk about the idea of translation in general. We've already talked about the way the Book Mormon's translated is definitely not the traditional definition that we have in English of one person knowing two languages and taking that knowledge and taking one text from one language that they know and interpreting it into a different language that they know. So obviously, whatever the Reformed Egyptian or whatever the language on the Book of Mormon was definitely not something that Joseph Smith had any knowledge of, nor could he. So in the essay, you kind of talk about this idea of, well, let's, let's just talk about translation in general. So the Quran, for example, is understood to be dictated basically by God, and the Prophet Muhammad was basically the human medium, meaning his hand was basically a conduit for God, and he wrote it down basically as, as though God were writing it. And, you know, I don't think, well, I guess some Mormons probably believe that the Book of Mormon is somewhat comparable to that, where it's literally every word is the perfect word dictated by God. But you bring up kind of this view of translation is never going to be directly from God unless God overpowers the person. And we can clearly see, since you said, like Joseph Smith, during his translation would look up and ask questions and ask people to read something back. And sometimes he'd even spell out names or have people help him with names. Anyway, he was clearly not being overtaken by some walk-in spirit or something like that. Nor was he doing automatic dictation or in a trance state, as some have suggested. He wasn't engaged in automatic writing because 
the way that he interacted with the text and with the people that he was working with would have precluded that. Exactly. So for anybody that's learned another language, for me, for example, I learned Russian on my mission. And so sometimes the mission president would come and he would tap me on the shoulder and be like, Elder Osler, I need you to translate for me. And while the people would speak rapidly in Russian and sometimes Ukrainian randomly, I would kind of interpret for him. But since my handle on Russian is not exact, nor can it be, and you can't translate Russian exact either, I was kind of just giving the basic idea of each sentence formulated into English. And so any translation, even in you know the literal sense, is not going to be verbatim for the most part. I mean, there are some people that get pretty close, I guess, but generally, especially with use of idioms and use of other things like that, you have to put it in your own words. And if you're trying to make it make sense to someone, you're going to relate it to something that they know about. Like you could say, oh, he said this, which is kind of like this word in English, or I guess we could say it like this. Anyway, that just I wanted to bring that up just in the idea of translation in general. And you learned Italian. Did you have a, a similar experience? Well, I mean, I've learned several languages, and there's not a single one from which there could be a one-to-one -one correspondence in translation. It would be nonsense. And so the notion that there was a character above a word and that that character came from the place and that it was translated word for word in that sense it is just nonsense. No language operates that way and there can't be a translation that is simply isomorphic in that sense. It's impossible. Moreover, we know that Joseph Smith wasn't translating in the sense, usually when a person translates, they know both languages, both the language from which they're translating and the language into which they're translating. And what they're doing is using their knowledge of the languages to try to render the meaning of the first into the meaning of the second, not in a word-for-word -word way, but in a way that would work. But anybody who's learned a language knows that there are all kinds of phrases you just can't translate. There are all kinds of words that really don't have cognates, and you really can't just give a one-to-one. -one. You have to explain the word. And so the kind of word-for-word -word translation that is being suggested, if anybody's going to take the notion of translation seriously, it can't mean that Joseph Smith was translated because there was a one-to-one -one correspondence between the gold plates and the Book of Mormon. Nor could it mean that Joseph knew an ancient language and translated what was there into a modern language. He didn't know Hebrew because he studied Hebrew later in the School of Prophets, and he started at square one, learning like the first day of school for any person who didn't know language. He uh, tried to study Egyptian later. It's clear he didn't know Egyptian. And so he's not giving us a text based upon his knowledge of an ancient language, and he's not giving us a text that's one-to-one -one correspondence, because that would simply be nonsense. It's clear that that's not what he's doing. And so any believer who held the view that there was a one-to-one -one correspondence, I think, just wouldn't understand the nature of translation. And then I have a quote here, but before I read it, just to set up some context for it. So before this quote, you kind of talk about the comparison of like the interpretation of Jesus' life in the Synoptic Gospels with the way it was portrayed in the Gospel of John. And you kind of mentioned that the Gospel of John looks back on the life and gives interpretations based on later understandings of Christianity. So they had this higher Christology that we talked about before. And so where one text says, like, when he gives water to the woman at the well, they say, wow, that was the eternal water. Or he gives someone bread, like, this is the bread of life. They're giving an explanation or they're putting deeper meaning into a historical happening. And how does that kind of fit with what we're talking about here? 
Yeah, I mean, it's clear that the apostles didn't understand what Jesus was saying, and they certainly didn't have the full understanding that's expressed in the Gospel of John, because the Gospels expressly state that they didn't understand him. And so what's being expressed in the Gospel of John is obviously and clearly a later understanding put into the mouth of Jesus by those who didn't really understand what Jesus was talking about at the time that he talked about it. And so what happens, however, is we get this very complete statement of Jesus in the most clear terms expressing that he is very God. You know, he is the great I am. Ego am is the Greek. He is Jehovah, in essence. And so we have this kind of a statement in the Gospel of John. So what happens is we get this very clear understanding presented, placed in the mouth of Jesus as if though it were uttered at the time when rather clearly it couldn't have been uttered with that kind of clarity, because if it were, the apostles had to be the biggest idiots who ever lived. Even the Gospel of John, Jesus doesn't really discuss the mysteries of the kingdom with them until chapters 14 through 17. And so even there, it's clear that the apostles are not understanding, at least during the time of his ministry before the last week of his life, but we get this, we would call this a more or less a midrashic way of dealing with what Jesus was saying. Not only is what he said given, but the true meaning of what he said is given, the way that it's revealed by the Spirit to them. In fact, the Gospel of John makes a point that the Spirit brought back to their recall what is being said in the Gospel of John. So this is a revelation, if you will, as to what actually happened in Jesus's life with the full meaning, the symbolic meaning. So if he gives somebody bread, as you said, he's not merely a person who's in Palestine eating bread. He is the very bread of life. If he gives somebody a drink from a well, it's not merely water drawn from a well. It is eternal life. It's the water that is going to bring eternal life to an individual. So the full understanding is imposed on earlier words. And what we get is an actualization of the text in light of the later understanding. What I assert is that with the Book of Mormon, we have the same kind of thing happening. Joseph Smith is translating what is happening in the sense that he's receiving a revelation of the text. If you wouldn't mind, can I, I'm just going to read the quote, because I just, that all build up was just so I could read this quote. So, quote is, I suggest that we view the original ancient text of the Book of Mormon, much as scholars view the expansion of the words of the historical Jesus in the New Testament. So, just like we talked about, John did. So Joseph Smith gave us not merely the words of the Book of Mormon prophets, but also the true meaning of the text within a 19th century thought world. The translation was not merely from one language into another, but was also a transformation from one thought world to another that expands and explains the meaning of the original text in terms that Joseph Smith and his contemporaries would understand. Translation by the gift and power of God thus entails much more than merely rendering from one language to another. I couldn't have said it better myself. Oh, hey, look at that. <laughs> and now, like you were kind of alluding to, now we kind of need to talk about this concept of revelation, and then what we need to understand is revelation in the context of the Book of Mormon translation. So, Jacob, if you'd like to take the lead on that section, I didn't warn you, but if you feel able to do that. All right, so... With the understanding in Mormonism that each person can receive personal revelation, and then even more so that a, a prophet of God can receive revelation, in the article, Dad, you proposed that not only is this a translation, as we're understood from, uh, by the gift and power 
of God, a divine translation, but it's both a revelation at the same time as we see Joseph's expansions put in the text. So it's a, a revelation of what this text was on the golden plates, but then it's somehow reflected through Joseph's view of the world. Uh, if you go in a little bit about how we explain that and, and why, if Joseph Smith isn't reading directly out of the Bible or copying out of this King James Version Bible, how does that appear in there and, and how does Revelation fit into this? Before getting into that, I'm just going to pose what I call a puzzler, and that is, on any view, Joseph Smith was using and quoting at length the King James Version of the Bible, but there's no evidence he had a Bible that he was reading from. Right. But on any view, explaining how Joseph Smith came up with 14 consecutive chapters, word for word, from the book of Isaiah, how did he do that? That's an amazing feat. And the answer is, I don't know that I have a good explanation for that particular fact, because what I'm alleging is that what he's doing is a revelation, in essence, of the text. Now, the revelation is one where he is in relationship with the text because he's viewing it in relationship with the stone. It's very clear that Joseph Smith was not looking at the text through his stone. The plates, at least in several accounts, remain covered by a cloth on the table while he's looking at his stone in the hat. So he doesn't even need the plates for the translation. But what he does need the plates for is the content of the revelation. In other words, you can't have a revelation of what's on plates if there are no plates. And so what he's receiving is a revelation of what is on the text. And when he looks into the stone, I'm positing that what the stone did for him was assisted him to focus his spiritual concentration so that he could be inspired to know what the revelation is. And then what he would do with that inspired understanding is he would speak the text of the Book of Mormon. But he's not speaking the text of the Book of Mormon on the plate. He's speaking the text of the Book of Mormon on the plates only as he receives it in Revelation. And the Revelation itself is the text of the Book of Mormon. Now, what's important to understand with that is that there has to be something that's being revealed. I mean, he does this with the text of a parchment of John. He does it with the Book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price. He does this also, I believe, with the Book of Abraham. In other words, what I'm positing is that Joseph Smith's mode of translation didn't vary for the various scriptural texts that he provided to us, whether he had an ancient text in his possession or not. They were all presented through the same method of revelation. You may ask, well, why did he need the gold plates? And the answer to that is, one, you can't have a revelation of what's on gold plates unless you have something written on gold plates. Two, if there had not been the three witnesses and the eight witnesses, I don't believe the early church would have ever gotten off the ground, and he needed a tangible proof that he could provide to witnesses who could then testify, yeah, I saw him too, and not only did I see him, an angel brought him down and laid him before my eyes. And so I believe it was the testimony of the three and the eight that initially in the church, at least, I think led to explosive growth in the very first part of the church. As I said, I don't think it could have gotten off the ground without him. And it also gives us an evidence of the physical relationship between the content that's on the plates and the nature of the revelation that he received. But the only way, because he didn't know ancient languages and because there couldn't be an isomorphic word one-for-one -one translation, the only way that this text of the Book of Mormon could have been received is through the divine gift of revelation. In fact, Joseph Smith made statements that the book was dictated directly to him through revelation, not dictated, he didn't use the word dictated, but he received it directly, and that he dictated 
the text of the Book of Mormon. What I then wanted to ask is, well, okay, what's the nature of revelation then that he would be receiving? So I developed a theory of revelation that would account for Joseph Smith's revelatory activities. Okay. And what does that theory of revelation consist of? Well, the theory begins with the observation that revelation at least includes a human being, and it's a human experience. It includes both God and a person, but it's essentially a human experience. The second observation is that there can't be any human experience without interpretation. In other words, the very minute we begin to speak within a language, we've adopted already the interpretive framework of that language. And English has a different interpretive framework than Greek or ancient Hebrew or or Russian. The framework for interpretation is different. But also, we live within a certain place and time. This is demonstrable in all the works of Scripture. The scriptures are written by places within a specific time period, and their writings reflect that culture at that time. In fact, that's the very basis of critical biblical scholarship. That is the assumption from which all scholarship begins. And so, if we're looking at the Book of Mormon in this context, Joseph Smith is receiving a revelation, and the revelation is going to reflect the ancient text that is on the place within the context and the language that he speaks and his ability to understand the terminology and express it. Joseph Smith could not use a term that wasn't in his vocabulary, or if he did, he was stretching to try to explain what it was. So, for instance, if he used the term Deseret to explain a bee, he, you know, nobody had ever done that before. He didn't understand what that was, or a Pacuman or a Pacumani. But the bottom line is that Joseph Smith had to use his own ability to understand his own terminology and speak within terms of his own cultural time. So when he speaks, he speaks in the vernacular of not only the 1611 King James Bible, but also within the vernacular of the 19th century Methodism, which he knew best. And so what we get in the Book of Mormon, when phraseology is used and when explanation is given, that he is expressing it within those terms because those are the only terms available to him as a human being. And so this kind of interpretation is essential to the nature of revelation itself. There is no such thing as a revelation that is free of the influence of the culture, the language, and the time and place in which the prophet receiving the revelation exists, or indeed we ourselves when we receive personal revelation. There's no such thing as a pristine revelation from God's point of view. Revelation is received from a human point of view, inspired and enlightened by God. And so it becomes what I call a co-creative creation between a human being and God. So God provides, in essence, through the Spirit, the datum that is the context of the revelation. The human being provides the ability to understand, the ability to express within a specific language, the terminology. And one cannot transcend, in essence, one's own abilities within that context, except to the extent when we have new thoughts we stretch for, then we will see partly, but we'll have to express it in terms that aren't fully understandable to us, perhaps. I don't want to assert Revelation can't reveal anything new that we haven't already known before. That's not what Revelation is. But that in expressing a Revelation, we use human language, and we have to look at the people to whom that Revelation is directed. What can they understand? If Joseph Smith had expressed the Book of Mormon in terms of Mayan language and mythology, nobody would have been able to understand it not merely in the 19th century, but now it would have been meaningless, literally meaningless to us. So rather it's expressed in terms of the 19th century Methodism, 
which has, I think, been a very good vehicle for expressing the revelations in the Book of Mormon. Also, and this is important, we've talked about the scope of God's power and how he interacts with humans and leaves us free. Revelation, in Mormon thought at least, is not where the human being is simply overcome and, and God pours information into the human being and they speak out of a trance the very words that God you know, is speaking through them. Like in Independence Day, when the alien takes over, the scientist in the lab puts his, whatever that is, the, you know, the alien has, he puts it on his throat, and the alien speaks through the human being. But it's not the human being speaking, the human being is already dead. That's not how we, human beings are not dead in Revelation. They don't cease to exist in the Revelation. Indeed, it is their vocabulary and their thoughts that are being expressed. Now, I go beyond that and say, in order to adequately explain what we have in the Book of Mormon, there have to also be sections where Joseph Smith was explaining the text at length. And I give an example of this, not in the article, but later. There is a Hebrew term, chesed. Chesed means essentially covenant grace, the kind of loving tenderness as a gift that God gave to Israel when he gave the covenant. But it expresses the entire grace that God has shown in his covenant relationship with Israel. One could just say, well, this means covenant grace, but nobody would understand what that means. The only way to adequately translate these words, covenant grace, as they appear in the Hebrew, and I'm, you know, that's not Hebrew, obviously, it's English, but that's what it means. The only way to adequately translate that would be to tell the whole history of Israel. So you translate a word, chesed, with an entire Bible, okay? And anything less than that would not be an adequate translation of the term, because that's what it is. And so we have this entire understanding where Joseph Smith was free as a prophet to expand and explain the text. So the book is twice inspired. Not only is it inspired to the original prophet, it's inspired when Joseph Smith explains the meaning of it to us. And he can expand and explain it in terms that will be accessible to us. And so with the Book of Mormon, we get, for instance, the entire text like Isaiah 53 thrown into Abinadi. And then Abinadi explains what's going on. I think that there are several larger expansions. Certainly the text in Second Nephi, where he's quoting Isaiah, is a quotation directly from the 1611 King James Version, which couldn't possibly have been available in word-for-word -word translation from the King James Bible, because the King James Bible hadn't been translated. It's that simple. So what we have is this co-creative participation that involves both God and humans in the translation process. Okay, just a quick question. So do you believe that Joseph Smith was aware that he was making these expansions on the text, or was he probably just thinking, you know, I'm just getting the text of what's on those plates from God, and that's what I'm having revealed to me throughout this process? In 1837, when he made the changes to the already published text, he was very aware that he was adding to the text, and that it was an expansion, which he felt free to make. But in the original translation, I don't think he was aware that what he was doing was an expansion. He was doing his best to express the inspiration and revelation that he was receiving about the meaning of the text. He was placing it into words and doing his best to express it. What I'm saying is that it's implicit in the very process of revelation, and it cannot be overcome because we're human beings. We couldn't possibly express a translation unless it were in human language. But a language is already an entire system of interpretation. He couldn't possibly have expressed it unless he were expressing it in language that was available at that particular time to the people to whom the text was addressed. And that assumes a culture of interpretation which they could understand. He couldn't possibly have received a revelation 
that was beyond his ability to grasp in terms of the words that he would use, and he had to choose the words to use. He was free in this process of the translation. In other words, he's freely interacting with the text to choose the best words and the best way to express it, and he couldn't have given an isomorphic one-to-one, so he's free to explain. So, for instance, oftentimes when I'm explaining phrases in Spanish or Italian or French or something like that, I'll say, you know, there's really no good English translation for that, but the closest I can come up with is this. Sometimes, let me tell you a story that lies behind that terminology so that you understand what it means, and then you'll get a grasp for it. But obviously, the word that I'm, I'm explaining isn't an entire story. But in order to grasp in English what that term means, I have to tell the background so that it's understandable. Because what we don't understand is in the very use of language, we have an entire cultural paradigm that we bring to our speech just to express it. And so any translation from one language to another has at least this type of play in it. There can't be anything less than that. But when it's revelation of the nature that Joseph Smith's receiving, it's even more because he's not receiving an isomorphic one-to-one word-for-word type of revelation. What he's receiving, I believe, are more general types of phraseology and concepts that he's doing his best to explain. You know, Joseph Smith didn't have a broad vocabulary. He didn't have the vocabulary of a college graduate. He wasn't a college graduate. He had the vocabulary of a 19th century backwoodsman, if you will. So he's doing his best to explain in those terms. Now, the text of the Book of Mormon doesn't read like it's just somebody rambling with general ideas. It's a very specific kind of a text. And so the Revelation was very able to deliver a very specific type of information about the nature of the text. And let me make this observation. When you're telling about something that was done, something can be told very directly. He went to the well and got water. When you're explaining the theological concept about what that means, explaining, and this water represents eternal life, the term eternal life, wow, that's a loaded concept. What does that mean? And so when one's explaining what eternal life is, this could go on for a while. You use the words in Greek or Hebrew for eternal life, two words. But when you're explaining what that means, you don't use two words. You use an entire article to translate those two words. So Joseph Smith, in receiving the revelation, had a much greater liberty in terms of explaining to us what the underlying text meant than simply a word-for-word rendition. On that note, though, it appears at least some words appear to him, or at least something he was able to see, because there were times that we have witnesses recording that if he didn't know how to pronounce the name or something, that he would then spell it out letter by letter. I would look very carefully at who it is that is saying that that occurred. Was it somebody who was present when it occurred? It comes from people like David Whitmer. I'm not sure David Whitmer is actually an eyewitness of the translation. So I want to be a little bit more critical about that kind of assertion. If I remember correctly, it was Oliver Cowdery that was saying that when he would come to names that he couldn't pronounce, he would just spell out the names. I think it was Emma, actually. Or or it could have been Emma. What you're referring to, I believe, is David Whitmer saying that the entire book appeared on the stone that he was looking at, which, with this mode of revelation, you said he didn't use, or at least we have evidence that he used the same mode of revelation for his future translations. And we know that the translations in the future, at least some of them, such as the Book of Abraham, at times he wasn't even using his seer stone. And so how could well, he be looking let, at words on the stone Let me explain something to there? you. These couldn't possibly have been read letter for letter about how to spell something out of either some kind of a dialect of Egyptian or Hebrew, because you can't use letters directly to spell the names the way they appear. 
It's right. clear that he's not using Hebrew alphabet to spell the names, and he's not using either Egyptian hieroglyphic or the kind of specific alphabet that existed in Demotic. Yeah, it's not a phonetic language. So. Yeah, so the bottom line is it would be impossible to do that from one language to another of the type he was using. Right, but like I was saying, it seems at least at some part in this revelatory, however he was viewing it, it appears he probably viewed this revelation the same way he viewed other revolutions, like Section 76, where there were other people in the room that couldn't see what he was seeing, but he, in his mind's eye or in his spiritual eyes, he was seeing something grand. Yeah, no, I have no doubt he has spiritual eyes, but the very theory that you're presenting is disabused by the text itself because names are spelled variously. I mean, they're spelled in different ways. And if Joseph Smith were spelling the names, you wouldn't have different spellings of the same name over and over again, would you? What do you mean by different spellings of the same name? The very same name in the text is spelled variously in, in different ways, in other words. The names in the original text of the Book of Mormon are corrected in some instances, but they're not corrected in all instances, and there are different spellings given for the very same names. That's what I'm saying. He didn't write it down, though. He dictated it, right? So whoever did the spelling wasn't Joseph Smith. Yeah, but if every name were spelled to the person who was taking the dictation, if it were spelled by Joseph Smith, he wouldn't get it different ways. Well, it appears, and I'll have to check my sources on, there was another who said, and it may have been David Whitmer, who it would kind of dismiss a lot of the validity there, but saying that and I believe it was Martin Harris that said that he was writing it down. And if there was something that was incorrectly written, that Joseph would stop and say, go back. You didn't write that correctly. It's supposed to be written like this. And then he would write it down. And when he was finished writing a sentence, he would say written. And then Joseph would continue. Right. I mean, that's at least one account of what was going on. But it's not the only way that it was going on. Well, and that would have been the 116 pages, which would have been the first way or the first attempt at translating, which appears to be with the, the original two stones that have now become known as the Urim and Thummim, looking at through the glasses that were too big. And so maybe at that point is when they were trying to do it that way and things were done a little bit differently when he went more with the seer stone and revelation route. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we ought to recognize a few other things. Not only were, you know, the, the names were spelled variously in different ways. But we have these studies that are done, statistical analysis and stylometric types of studies about whether or not John Hilton and others have done these kinds of studies, um, a study by James Croft, if I recall correctly. And what they did is they, they did computer word prints to see if the various authors of the Book of Mormon could be teased out based upon use of various types of words that are not, you know, they're the types of words like and and to that you use with certain frequencies in the way you speak. And what they came up with is that, in fact, there are very distinct word prints for various authors in the Book of Mormon. That's not easily explained on my theory. The notion that this was a word-for-word -word translation that appeared in the stone is not consistent with the theory. The theory is a strong theory, and I think is the best theory to explain the Book of Mormon. But the bottom line is, is that not every take on the Book of Mormon is going to fit easily into the theory, and I think that just ought to be acknowledged. Okay. And I just also want to bring up that your understanding that Revelation is always filtered through humanity before it's actually revealed to and can be disseminated from prophets to other people has scriptural basis. Mainly we see this in Doctor Covenants 1 where he says, Behold, I am God, I have spoken it. These commandments are of me, and were given unto my servants in their weakness, after the manner of their language, that they might come into understanding. And like you said, 
if there's anything divine that's going to come down, it's always going to be filtered through some sort of weakness, through some sort of men in their language and in the time that they live. And let me point out a few other things. I mean, anybody who's going to take seriously the history of the Book of Mormon has to accept something like the expansion theory to make it feasible in terms of what we know about, for instance, animals. Joseph Smith talked about several animals, but it's not feasible that these types of animals were actually present. And so, for instance, if you look at the work of John Sorensen, what he says is, well, he's using these terms, but the bottom line is, is it could mean that particular animal. It means an animal that's like that, though. So, for instance, we're talking about a taper rather than a horse or maybe a deer. And so, if you look at what he says, and in fact, what he says in particular is, and this is what he says, I'm going to quote it, in order to make sense of animals identified in the Book of Mormon, we must consider a wide range of historical, linguistic, and natural scientific information in order to search for clues to interpret the scripture statements. But isn't it obvious that the cow of the Book of Mormon was our familiar bovine straight out of without all of its hedging? No, it's not at all obvious. First, we're trying to figure out what the Book of Mormon really means by the words we have in the English translation. Second, there's a lack of reliable evidence, historical, archaeological, zoological, or linguistic, that old world cows were present in the American pre-Columbian times. End quote. When it talks about cows, we're going to have to identify some other animal. And so we begin to look at the animals that are actually present that could be very bovine-like. Maybe a buffalo or a bison is bovine-like enough to be called a cow. But all of them, and he says, these are all merely conceptual approximations. The same thing is true when we're talking about directions, because in the ancient world, when they talk about north and south, they don't use those terms the way that we do. They have a different notion of time and space. And so our notion, when they say he went north, they're using a concept that probably didn't even exist in that sense. The bottom line is, if we're going to take the Book of Mormon seriously as the possibility of an ancient text that actually reflects events that occurred in the New World, we're going to have to retranslate references to animals in the Book of Mormon and other things in the Book of Mormon to try to see what approximation it is using for what is actually present there. There's just no other way to do that. And so what I want to assert is that there's no way for a believer who believes that it's ancient to actually accept anything other than that this was a conceptual translation with approximations and words being used. It's the only possible way it could be. If you don't believe in the Book of Mormon, you say, ah, it's, you know, it just assumes all kinds of later things, but then you haven't explained the evidence of antiquity, and it needs to be explained in my view. I think the evidence of antiquity of the Book of Mormon, at least in my view, and I've, I've done a good deal of it, and I have enough training in critical biblical scholarship and techniques to know that the evidence as it appears in the Book of Mormon for its antiquity is very persuasive and compelling. Now, let me acknowledge another thing. The presence of chiasmus in the Book of Mormon isn't all that easily explained in terms of the theory either, because that depends on more exacting uses of words than one would have with merely a conceptual translation. But chiasmus does appear in the Book of Mormon, and the question is, is this an evidence of its antiquity? Well, the answer is, yeah, it's some evidence of antiquity. But is it evidence against the theory? And the answer is, yeah, it is some evidence against this type of a theory. You know, I've looked at, well, okay, how do we deal with this evidence? Because the notion of a theory is to best explain all of the evidence. And so what I want to assert is that when we're talking of theological ideas, and explaining, for instance, things like the atonement, 
the translation is much looser and conceptual than when we're dealing with other specific types of terms where the language is more specific and not quite as conceptual. And so some parts of the Book of Mormon may be rather closely aligned, not word for word, but more aligned with the actual language that's on the plates. And some may be looser. And so I have kind of a mixed view of how close, you know, how tight is the revelation in relationship to the text. And the answer is, I think it varies based upon the nature of the language that's being used. There's a couple more points here. I don't know how much we want to flesh those out. We've talked about this to a certain extent, but the expansion theory seems, well, I mean, you kind of just talked about it. So the expansion theory kind of blurs the line of compromising the historicity of the Book of Mormon. And so One of the criticisms that some people have brought up, not understanding your view very carefully, I might add, is that now that we have this, it's really hard to understand what's an expansion and what's the actual text, and we need to somehow separate them because one is worth more than the other. And I think you've pretty much answered that, but if you could just answer that, and then I guess just in summation, just go over what you think some common misunderstandings about your view what is this view not, and then clarify what you are asserting, if, if you are aware of some of those things? Sure. I think the scholarly methods that I used in doing the article are the way to tease out modern and ancient in the Book of Mormon, what is an expansion, what is more ancient. So, for instance, I look at the text in terms of source criticism. That is, if it relies upon a modern source, it's pretty clearly not ancient. That is, if it relies upon a source that is after the Babylonian captivity, pretty likely that is either an expansion or a looser control type of translation in the way that it's phrased. And in motif criticism, if the language that's used is the language of 19th century theological views, then more likely that is modern terminology that's being used to explain what's going on. I look at the Book of Mormon in particular and, and point out that the usage of the language, for instance, uses of terms like devil, like salvation, and the notion of the Messiah and becoming Christ, uh, the first of the Book of Mormon, the way Lehi uses the terms, he uses them in a much vaguer, not really fully developed Christian way. So, for instance, to give an example, the word baptism also does this, though it does it in a strange way. In Second Nephi, we have a very developed Christian notion of baptism. But in Mosiah, they don't seem to know about Christian baptism. When Alma baptizes, he doesn't baptize in the name of Christ, and it's certainly not in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost the way that Christians do. It's in the name of Messiah, and the notion of the Messiah is not really fleshed out. But then we get this development where further revelations are given, and there's a more complete understanding. Same thing with the devil and the notion of the afterlife. The very question asked by Laman and Lamuel presumes that they don't know anything about an afterlife. They've never been taught about it. And that's because in the southern kingdom in Judah, just before the Babylonian fall, the concept of an afterlife was not very well developed. The notion of what Shaul is, is not at all developed and whether or not a person continues to exist. There's this Hebrew term, Rahaim, which means kind of shades. And the Hebrews thought that we were shades, but what a shade is and what Shaul is were clearly not very well developed terms for what happens in an afterlife. One could assert that they believe that the Shaul is just a hole in the ground and you bury the body there and that's it. So you get Lehi answering questions by Laman and Lemuel when he has these revelations, explaining about the afterlife and what these terms mean. He explains what a devil is and and expands because it's a new term. They have never heard it before. And so what we have in the Book of Mormon is this presentation that we're developing the terminology here and we've, we've got to explain it. So again, I use form critical methods to tease out what is ancient and what is modern. 
the form critical method is when I'm looking at a form that isn't known in the 19th century, wasn't discovered until the 1950s or 60s in the United States or in Europe by scholars, and we have very compelling examples of it in the Book of Mormon, I've got to say, well, that form in this text is at least in some sense based on an ancient text, the way that it's presented. The language may not be, but the form in which it's presented is very clearly ancient. Those kind of things. So what I'm saying is it's the critical biblical methods, the scholarly methods that tease out what is modern and what is ancient. Okay, so with that, I guess what I'm just getting at is the misunderstanding criticism, I guess, that I'm giving, I just want to give you the chance to explain it. So is there a difference in the value of the expansions versus what's closer to the original content? There's no less value. I mean, in fact, what I would say is the expansions are twice inspired. You've got the underlying message to the original prophet, and then you've got the further explanation and revelation received by Joseph Smith. It's not less valuable in any sense. The fact that it's been twice inspired, once to original prophet and later in, in an expansion to explain it, makes it maybe just twice inspired. There's nothing wrong with that. So it's not more or less valuable. It's just a different sense in how it relates to the underlying text. Okay, and then... Are there any criticisms that have come up over the years that you think merit being addressed at the moment? Just any, like just the basic concept of the criticism? The DNA evidence suggesting that not all Amerindians are descendants of, of Israelites, I think is an interesting argument that's had, received a lot of attention. I just don't think it has any traction. We have no idea what... Does that have anything to do with your theory, though? Yeah, I mean, if the DNA argument showed what it purported to show, then there couldn't be anything ancient in the Book of Mormon at all. It's a refutation of the possibility of antiquity. And that's not what it shows. That's against the Book of Mormon itself, I guess. But Are you saying are there other evidences that would need to be accommodated in the theory? Not evidences. I'm saying what have people brought up over the years against your theory specifically, not against necessarily the Book of Mormon, but just against this view? Actually, I've kind of raised them. I mean, they've raised the, the notion that this doesn't work well with chiasmus, it doesn't work well with Hebrew word prints, it doesn't work well with the notion that the underlying text is a more or less exacting duplicate of an ancient document that relies upon the express phraseology of Hebrew phrase. For instance, you get these studies showing that the phrases used are typical Hebrew phrases. And if they're typical Hebrew phrases, Joseph Smith didn't know typical Hebrew phrases. And he couldn't have expressed them if, if this was a loose translation. And so those kinds of arguments have been made. Now, let me point to a specific type of an interaction. Steve Robinson at BYU actually had an article published where he took on the expansion theory. And it was published by BYU, where he argues that the expansion theory is kind of critical biblical scholarship run amok in relationship to the Book of Mormon. I have on my website, BlakeOsler.com, a response to that kind of argument given by Stephen Robinson. And Stephen, of course, believes in the antiquity of the Book of Mormon. The Tanners attacked it from a different view, saying they believe that anybody who had a Bible at their elbow could have reduplicated the form-critical types of patterns that we find in the Book of Mormon. They could have come up with prophetic lawsuit forms. They could have, just off the top of their heads, come up with a covenant renewal. They could have come up with the, the call commission, that kind of a thing. They don't give a good argument why that's the case. They merely assert it. And I think it not merely begs the question, it just isn't plausible to me. So those are the kinds of things that have been raised against the article since it came out. All right. And then 
going forward with it, in your view, did this type of method of revelation and translation apply to all of the texts that Joseph Smith produced? It couldn't possibly have been otherwise, yeah. I mean, Joseph Smith is receiving revelation. There's not a single text that he provided to us that purports to be an ancient text that he translated because he knew the ancient language. He didn't know Greek, so he couldn't have translated the parchment from John. He didn't know ancient Hebrew, so he couldn't have translated the book of Moses that purports to be directly from Moses. He didn't know either Egyptian or Hebrew, so he couldn't have translated the Book of Mormon from those languages in the way that we usually use the term translation. The only candidate, really, for the nature of translation is in the nature of revelation. And so, if it's not revelation, then there's nothing related to antiquity in the Book of Mormon, in my view. That's the only way, because he didn't know ancient languages, and it's pollucidly clear that he did. Though the article specifically addresses the Book of Mormon, this is kind of just assessing a possible way that Joseph Smith did translation or received revelation in general. All right, just in summation, let me just read this last paragraph that you have, which I'll post a link to this as well. So I'm going to post a link to the article and another article that was entitled Updating the Expansion Theory, but it's more of just saying, hey, it still works, and to your answer to Stephen Robinson and stuff like that. I'll post all that when we publish this. So let me just read this last paragraph here. I believe that the Book of Mormon is precisely what it claims to be, a book translated by the gift and power of God that tells us about the record of an ancient people. However, translation by the gift and power of God isn't translation based upon an isomorphic rendering of an underlying text into English based on a knowledge of the ancient textual language. Rather, it is a revelation from God which involves necessarily the limitations of vocabulary, conceptuality, and horizons of God's servants chosen to render it into English for us. And there you go. There's the theory. Yep, there's the theory. I will say that I still regard it as the best explanation of the text of the Book of Mormon based upon the evidence that I've seen. But I'm open to new information that may cause me to revise the theory in ways I can imagine information that would cause me to abandon it. I mean, if we found ancient plates and found out that the Book of Mormon was a tight translation with no explanation, expansion, or modern terms, they were all somehow related to the ancient text, then of course I would abandon my theory. I would also abandon my theory if I found persuasive evidence that there were others in the 19th century who were totally familiar with these form-critical evidences of antiquity, and that Joseph Smith was relying on those when he came up with the Book of Mormon, so that the evidence of antiquity isn't persuasive. So there are a lot of ways I can imagine that I would either abandon or modify the theory. But as I said, with the slight tweaking that I think some parts are tight, tighter than others and some are looser than others in terms of translation, I think that the theories I came up with it is still the most persuasive theory that explains more evidence than any other theory that I know about. And so I think it's the best theory at the present time. All right, yeah, that's great. And yeah, like I said, you wrote it 30 years ago, and it holds up still. And so with that, I think we'll close out, and next time we will start on the second volume. Great, look forward to that. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploring Mormon thoughts.